Hello, you're listening to The Booking Club with Jack Aldane, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favourite places to eat and drink. On this episode from the Hawksmoor in Borough, London, journalist and author Helen Lewis and I sit down to discuss her new BBC Radio 4 series, The New Gurus. British journalist and author, staff writer at The Atlantic, former deputy editor of The New Statesman and voice of BBC Radio 4's latest series, The New Gurus, Helen Lewis is here with me at the Hawksmoor in Borough. Thank you very much for making an exception in that my book came out now three years ago and my next book, well, let's not talk about my next book, it's a subject of some distress, but it won't be out for at least a year, so... I've broken the format already. I know that I've chased you over the preceding years during the pandemic to talk about difficult women, and uh, I'm not sure that it will necessarily come up in this conversation, but it's very nice to have you here now. Uh, thank you very much for agreeing to come on The Booking Club. Do you know what? The fr- would you like to go to Hawksmoor and have a steak was, I think, my favourite bit of the invitation. I was here two weeks ago myself for my 35th birthday, and apparently you had been, you'd been here just moments before. Yes, I, I come here quite often. <laughs> I remember, I'm now old enough that I remember I went to the first one, which was in Spitalfields, opposite that beautiful church, um, and it's soft opening. And I remember, I mean, this, God, how long ago is that now? I was still, you know, a young hipster at the time. And I just really like big steaks. It's not a particularly sophisticated answer, is it? Um, I used to, one of my very first jobs in journalism was at Square Meal, uh, which was a, a restaurant review site. So coming straight out of university, I wrote the Fulham chapter of their restaurant guide, which was for kind of city people. And I spent a glorious summer globe, like trotting around Fulham, eating free dinners and reviewing them. And so I've eaten a lot of fancy food in my time, I'm not ashamed to say. But I'm now old enough. You know when you get that stage where you're old enough to admit that, that you like quite basic things? You don't have to try and pretend you like cool and trendy things. I just like, like steak and chips. Although... And this is quite bad. I have now started ordering the bone marrow gravy with the chips. And I'm not even really northern. I'm from the Midlands. But that is, again, I always feel like I have to apologise for that because it's like I'm, I'm besmirching their beautiful chips with, like, by dipping them in gravy. Well, the bone marrow gravy here is just fantastic, right. isn't it? Right, OK, yeah, yes, you can't, exactly. You can't not have it. So, no. yeah, yeah. You sound very apologetic. Don't be apologetic I, for either I, liking steak and chips or indeed anything else about this place. It's wonderful. But this comes recommended from you highest above all, having dined out a lot essentially so really that says something right i've eaten many big dinners like that tory mp that they put the graffiti on the wall i like big dinners russell brand jordan b peterson liver king kevin samuels gwyneth paltrow ibram x kendi robin d'angelo elon musk alex jones the list goes on these are some of the new gurus that walk among us or levitate above us depending on how sold you are on their access to secret knowledge At least one of these names will be familiar to anyone with a smartphone, which is where I want to start this conversation. Because what everyone will say about the world you uncover in The New Gurus is that it's a world we've always lived in. We've always sought wiser heads than our own. What is it about the way we seek them today that makes this, as you argue, a golden age of gurus? 
Well, we start the series with Russell Brand as, you know, a kind of exemplar, as you say, of these, these new gurus, somebody who had a mainstream career and actually stepped into the alternative world. You know, he's now broadcasting on YouTube where he's got six million subscribers and he got a strike for COVID misinformation. So he's got a backup at Rumble, which is a very uncensored platform. Um, so he's a, he's a kind of avatar of, of what I'm talking about in some respects. But in the first episode, we then go back to Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs was a kind of classic seeker. You know, he was a second generation hippie, as one of his friends put it to us. And in the 1970s, he went to India in search of his own guru. You know, he'd read all the books, you know, Be Here Now and all the books about mucusless diets. And he tried primal scream therapy. But he wanted, he was looking for something in life, something sort of transcendental in meaning. And so he went to India and tried to find a guru. But the guy he wanted to, it turned out, had died the year before. And so he came back and found his sort of search for meaning in Silicon Valley. And it's not a surprise to me that the counterculture of Silicon Valley kind of combined with Western capitalism is what gives rise to that figure of the guru. Because when you talk about, you know, the, the idea, idea in, the, in Indian tradition, it's a one-to-one -one relationship, but it's not that anymore. It's somebody preaching to a huge flock. And you're right, that's, that's happened before. I was thinking about Brian Friel's play Faith Healer, which has got one of those very charismatic... Uh, leads in there's an old Vic version with Michael Sheen played that part and you know that kind of idea of someone who would go from town to town captivating and mesmerising people well in the 1800s at 1900s that's the model that you, you had to do now you don't have to go from town to town you just set up your stall on the internet and people come to you it's never been easier not only to reach people but also to develop these incredibly deep one way relationships with them right the idea that you listen to hours and hours of these guys content you know Russell Brand is broadcasting three times a week I think Joe Rogan is making three shows a week and you know they might be three hours long you can spend more time with these people than you spend with most of your friends it's very interesting that you brought up Steve Jobs in the first episode I mean I guess I always saw Steve Jobs as the guy who made the computer more human and how he always described the computer as like a bicycle of the mind and this is where it's led us I mean there's so much to explore here. We got right? on that bicycle and we rode it straight we to rode crazy it town. Straight into the path of people who drink their own urine. You have to tell me about some of the characters you met. And uh, I suppose the best place to start would be to, well, let's start with one of the interviewees, the image she invoked of the little churches that glow in the dim fog of our online search for meaning. And that naturally brought to mind the subject of religion. But mm. I wonder whether it's as important to understanding the new gurus to go down a path of talking about the decline of religion as talking about technology, the technology that birthed these new gurus in the first place. So if we have that fork in the road, which path should we go down? We can always come back to the other. Yeah, let's talk about the psychological aspect, because that's usually the bit that interests me most. I mean, however complicated the most complicated machine is, it's not as complicated as the human mind and what, why humans do what they do. The person you're talking about there is the bioethicist Alice Dreger, who uh, was offered the chance to be in the intellectual dark web, that group of whatever you want to call them, heterodox intellectuals, um, anti-woke intellectuals in, in 2010. And she rejected the opportunity. Actually, when she was having a photograph taken for this feature, she was out in the back of her garden in the sort of twilight, basically, and just began to feel sort of profoundly silly. And that's really interesting to me because one of the things that came up in the series is, is the Americanness of a lot of this. And I think America, unlike Britain, it's a culture that is much more at ease with people being incredibly earnest, particularly about self-improvement. Um, you know, I think people in Britain are a bit more snarky, a bit more ready to dunk on people, a bit more keen to bring people down a peg or two. 
and actually it's very one of the things that's sort of weirdly refreshing about covering the gurus is they're some of the last unself-aware people left on the internet you know that they they're not sort of struck by this kind of crippling doubt and and sort of self-awareness all the time so her idea of these little churches was about the decline of institutional authority and you know i think that there has been a big challenge to mainstream media organizations by outsiders in the last 10 or 20 years and at the same time yeah in both the uk and america we have seen substantial decline something like a 20 point decline in the us uh, in regular church attendance and you know i was raised in a religious family i'm not religious now and i can kind of catholic, s- yeah, right? catholic. yeah my my father's a deacon in the catholic church my mum's an re teacher so pretty pretty catholic um, and i can kind of see that you know that belief systems do give a kind of structure and architecture to your life and also we're all innately predisposed to want to be in an in group and have a strong idea of what the out group is so i think that those are things that gurus kind of tap into and exploit and the americanness of the new gurus is very interesting two books that i've been reading quite some years apart but still that have remained very vivid in my mind about the therapeutic culture of america <laughs> One is The Culture of Narcissism by Christopher Lash. The other is Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, which I just started reading at the beginning of the year. Quite coincidentally, then I started listening to the New Guru series and I just started taking all these notes because it seems so relevant. I, I've read extracts of that, but not the whole thing. So one of the things that he talks about in that, right, is, is that we thought the future would be 1984 and the burning of books and libraries. And in fact, it's Brave New World and everybody is anaesthetized. And actually, all the knowledge is out there. You just sort of can't be bothered. You're just as amusing yourself to death, right? You're just stuck in this lovely, yeah. like, proto-Wally kind of, like, your bones are dissolving because you're just spending all your time sitting down That's consuming right. TikTok we content. We be destroyed by what we hate, but by the things we love. Yeah. yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense, you know. I think that those... I don't know about you, but I have, I have struggled and lost the war with my attention span over the last decade. And I know lots of the research in that area is very flimsy. And I'm sure there were other things I distracted myself with before. But I do remember very clearly what I thought when I got my first iPhone. I thought, I'm never going to be bored again. Is that what you thought? When did you get your first iPhone? I think I must have got mine in 2013, possibly 14. I think it was slightly earlier than Mm. that. I remember the first time I saw one at a friend. I went to see in New York and he got one and it was like... It was like sort of staring at a kind of Star Trek tricorder, except actually more impressive than a Star Trek tricorder. Um, but I, but the thing is about that is that I have been bored many times since, but not in the same way I was before of having nothing to do, but having loads of things to do, but not wanting to do any of them. It's more like ennui now, right? Do you struggle as a journalist, as I do, with the general sense that you're always skim reading? Everything you do is skim reading. It's so frustrating. Do you Do you relate to that? Yeah, I sometimes feel like I'm one of those kind of, you know, those terrible fishing nets that they just drag along the ocean floor and it brings everything up and it destroys everything in its wake. I do sometimes feel like that. And I definitely felt when researching difficult women, it was mind-blowing to go back and read books from the 70s and find stuff in them that wasn't available at all online. Because there is the assumption now, again, with this glut of information, that of course everything's available and of course I can find it on Google Books. And then particularly finding out that you know, people in both the 1920s and the 1970s had had exactly the same questions, exactly the same debates that we're having now, and that knowledge had been lost generationally, was a, a, a profoundly humbling experience. Just to give you an example, like um, the suffragettes were completely torn apart by the question of whether or not they should allow men in the movement, which I have lived through subsequent iterations of that in feminism. You know, how much should feminism talk about men? Should it be more inclusive, more welcoming to men? And, you know, it's those 
those things were all like the discussions about bad sex were being had in the in the 1970s very earnestly in the feminist movement and in a way that Cosmo is still writing about them now right for each new generation of 14 year olds that wants to find out about this it's sort of all got to be relearned and that's that that does worry me that the, the shallowness because you can't see how shallow it is because it's so broad mm. I guess we did get to the book after all I know isn't that great I feel that seamless transition but to press the point on Postman's analysis as a technology theorist, and that book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, was written in 1985, and yet I think it's reached peak relevance in this decade. I wonder whether you think maybe the new gurus are a yearning for a return to a sort of pre-typographical culture, an oral culture of soothsayers and, and witches and shamans talking about the people who go from town to town impressing people. Is this a rejection? in our culture of learning through silent text in favour of physical theatre. I think that's a very interesting thesis to explore because I know what you mean. I hate watching YouTube videos. I will go and read the transcript because I can read so much faster than I can listen to someone. And I have friends who listen to stuff on two times speed and that's maybe one way around it. But I don't like consuming my information that way. But other people do. And other types of job, if you've got a much more manual job, there was a great New York Times podcast, Rabbit Hole, where they talked to a guy who was an Amazon warehouse worker. And so he listened to eight hours of podcasts a day. You know, Joe Rogan was perfect for him because he would just could, he needed something to kind of mentally entertain him as he was doing this very repetitive manual work. So I think there is something to that. And also the, the, the sheer entertainment value, um, that particularly of YouTube videos, right? And the culture that, of remixing that then you, you build where people do reaction videos. I saw that very clearly when I interviewed Jordan Peterson in 2018 quite how many videos got made that was someone talking over it commentating it like like a sports game like a really really dweeby sports game it's really strange isn't it the reaction videos yeah i mean it's just farming a very you know popular is, property yeah. for spawning for, content out of content for likes. yeah but, yeah hello malcolm are yeah. we ready to order yeah i can, I can okay. order um can i get a manhattan please perfect and do you mind if i i'm just gonna have a sirloin if that's okay yeah i think i'll have the same do you um, want to share a sirloin we could just have one larger sirloin that's okay rare please perfect yeah after my own heart and uh cream spinach for me please would you like uh could i please have the caesar salad and could i get the triple cooked chips and may i also get the bone marrow gravy love that bone marrow gravy I wondered whether we would disagree on how the steak should be cooked, but I'm really glad you went for rare. I know. <laughs> a terrible moment when you're like, well done. <gasps> Do you like steak tartare as well? Yes. Love a raw egg yolk. Why not? What's, <laughs> well, you know, go all in. Um, one of the most interesting interviews that I did last year for The Spark was with a, a, a researcher, an independent researcher called Karen Stenner, who researches authoritarianism. Mm. And she believes that a third of us have an authoritarian predisposition. We're primed to want oneness and sameness. She's written a fantastic book, hasn't she? Yeah. I've not yet read it. She's done various chapters and stuff and um is a is a really interesting thinker because it's i more and more think about politics through the terms of personality so one of the things that she talks about is that you know that those people with that authoritarian predisposition become overwhelmed in the cacophony of a multicultural liberal democracy with a free press you know with this incredibly lively debate culture which i think is hard for me as a journalist because you know in the big five personality traits one of them is openness to new ideas and experiences score incredibly highly on that right you, you probably do too like it's the nature of the, the work it attracts people like that so I don't know many people who don't feel like that but there are about a, a third of people who, who like things to be the same and she says you know in good times they're the person who mows their lawn runs the rotary association 
but when they're under conditions of threat, then they begin to think, oh, I wish we didn't have such a free... Why can't people just agree? Why aren't things like they used to be? You know, all of those things. And it's a really good explanation then for how you would then build a, a culture they can live with by stressing oneness and same, by stressing national symbols like the monarchy, like the NHS, like whatever it might be, you know, that we're all one people. And I've just finished writing a piece for The Atlantic about a kind of character type that crops up in the series, which is the kind of extremophile, as I think of them, the person who pings from one very extreme ideology to another. And so in order to understand them, it's, it's best not to understand them in the context of whatever they're currently talking about, but as someone who is searching perpetually for something, some missing piece in their life. Um, you know, and I, one of the examples I give is Michaela Peterson, daughter of Jordan Peterson, who has gone from being somebody who primarily talks about eating an all-beef diet, very relevant for this evening, um, to now being a, having, through psychedelics, converted to Christianity and now talking about God. And what links those two things? Well, well nothing, really, except for the fact that they both speak of a type of personality, but somebody who's always looking for something, and then when they find it, are very certain about it, you know, and they want to tell other people... And this is it. I found the answers. I've got the answers. So there's the political dimension and perhaps the predisposition in some. Aha, here it is, the Manhattan. Thank you very much. Towards wanting everything to make sense and fit and be ordered. But then there's that phenomenon that Christopher Lash writes about in The Culture of Narcissism, which is that for many of us in an individualist society, imposing order is about retreating into the self. It's again, it's part of this therapeutic need for everything to be sui generis, right? Christopher Lash writes in The Culture of Narcissism that the narcissist hopes to find in the therapeutic relationship support for his fantasies of omnipotence and eternal youth. Eternal youth is something that comes up in the new gurus as well, isn't it? Yeah, I have to say, I didn't find that in the, in therapy. I found a very sensible Dutch woman who told me to stop saying yes to everything and <laughs> stop worrying so much. But I Sounds know very it, Dutch. It was, that's exactly why I picked her. I thought, you know who's no nonsense? <laughs> I'll have a middle-aged Dutch woman. She'll tell me what's what. But I, yeah, I think that's really interesting because actually one of the rhetorical techniques that the gurus often use is that we're all on journey together. So Russell Brand's opening spiel every time is, welcome to my six million awakening wonders as we journey towards truth, right? So it's like, I'm leading you, but you're an active participant in this. And that's something that you see all the time. And I think social media really encourages, right? What is the most popular thing on TikTok? It's people saying stuff about themselves that's relating to a trend, right? So those trends that encourage you to talk about yourself. What's the most popular thing on Twitter? It's always like the, tell me how old you are without telling me how old you are, right? So you can join in, but you, you're actually talking about yourself. And another thing that Alice said, which didn't make the edit, which I thought was fascinating, is that she said narcissists often make the best activists because they associate themselves with the cause, they see themselves as the avatar of the cause, and they never get bored of talking about themselves, which means they never get bored of talking about the cause. And you can kind of see that in someone like Emmeline Pankhurst, you know, in The Suffragettes. If you're constantly talking about the oppression of women, what you actually mean is the oppression of you personally, and you've, you've just find a way to kind of turn that into a class analysis, but you never get bored of it in the way that other people might do. I mean, Emmeline Pankhurst was a, a narcissist in this sense? She was the mother of uh, Christabel, Sylvia and Adela Pankhurst um, and, you know, stood as a candidate herself. And she was magnificent. Um, like, this is not a criticism. I'm, I think narcissists are really fascinating to study because in some ways they are kind of necessary. They make things happen. You may not like them, but you feel they're important. Right. Yeah, I mean, being... You know, the book I'm writing at the moment about genius features a lot of people who are narcissists because what is the characteristic of genius? Well, it's externally imposed, right? We all disagree who geniuses are, really, to some extent. And one of the times that happens is when someone does a lot of self-mythologizing. 
someone like Picasso being a classic example, you know, what makes Picasso a better painter than anyone else of his age? You could talk about Cubism, you could talk about his the African influences on his work, but it's also about the fact that he created this, what it means to be an artist, at exactly the moment that a mass media art market developed, you know, and he was a, a brand to the extent that you will now get rich people will say, that's a Picasso, right? He understood that sort of sense of that you have to you have to turn yourself into a capital letter person. You obviously did your duty as a journalist, never to be too judgmental of the people that you spoke to on the series. But I had to ask, which of these new guru-led movements left you feeling the most alienated, would you say? The one where you came away with a a bad taste in the mouth. And if it's the urine-drinking one, then... (laughs) It's my second drink of the evening. Um, I know, and I... So episode two is wellness. I don't get wellness at all really like it just seems like the biggest load of cobblers in that I just think Michael Pollan's rules for eating right are like eat food not too much mostly vegetables and unfortunately that's really the best advice everything else is trying to like desperately avoid the fact that Twix is a bad for you and broccoli is good for you hence why we're here tonight right exactly but you know what I mean it just feels like a multi-billion dollar industry set up to avoid the fact that actually we all know what the answer is it's like have you thought about going for a walk and you know not eating refined sugar so uh i i felt very alienated for that but i specifically wanted to talk to will blunderfield who as you mentioned does drink his own urine because he was a really interesting character to me as somebody that people particularly a bbc audience might find initially unsympathetic he's very opposed to vaccines he thinks he was vaccine injured but when you pick through his life story you know, he tells about this story about growing up eating kind of crappy ready meals. And if you've been to America for a learning of time, particularly not in the coast, you know, that it can be very hard to go to a supermarket there and find, you know, good food that is not pumped full of weird stuff. So I, I sympathise with him on that. And then he had this other experience where he was gay bashed, essentially, with a, a boyfriend and was anxious and depressed about that and went to a um, doctor who then offered him pills rather than therapy. And the idea that Big Pharma has not got your best interests at heart, particularly in America, right? It sees you as a, as a cash register. And so I wanted to understand, again, it comes back to that idea of politics being psychological. Psychologically, what were the formational experiences of his life that had brought him? You know, his father is a doctor that had brought him to reject most of modern medicine. And that's much more interesting to me than, than just saying, well, that's... That's stupid. Vaccines are obviously great, you know, because I live in this world of where, to me, vaccines are obviously great because I trust the academic journals and, you know, and the rollout and the medical authorities are all telling me the truth, which he obviously doesn't. So you felt quite a lot of empathy for Will Blunderfield, not particularly alienated. The more you learnt about him, the more you could see how he'd come to the place he had come to. Right, which I think is what you're trying to do with a documentary like this, is to say... How did you get here? Another example being the dating episode. I mean, I feel very alienated from that manosphere. Um, not least because every time you write about them, obviously they scream that you're a you know ugly whore. But not uh, least because of your interview with Jordan Peterson, which we will get on to. Okay, but. right, we'll get we'll get to that. But you know, I have tried, and I think I probably am more than I was ten years ago, empathetic to men who really feel like they have been left behind, and. You know, the fact that they are then susceptible to those messages from those unpleasant figures in the manosphere who say, look, 
you know, women are only after one thing. They're all gold diggers. So you need to get in first. You need to treat them like, you know, they're sort of sex dispensers. And here's like the cheat codes that you can do that, that they will make them have sex with you. And I just think it's really sad because I think it's a fundamentally bleak view of human relations. You know, I'm married. I've been married for several years. You know, I, 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 it's one of the best things in my life is, is having relationships with, with various men. But only one at a time, I would like to say. But it just a bleak view of that, that like transactional view of relationships I feel completely alienated from and I think you know it's it, it dips into some pretty severe misogyny in places and it clearly preys on the young mm. I will honestly say that when I discovered who Jordan Peterson was in 2016 before the Kathy Newman interview before his profile really blew up it was potent stuff and I appreciated the audacity of his turn of phrase his metaphor his allegory, his fearlessness about bringing into a conversation about mainstream issues today all these strands of ancient history, theology, psychoanalysis. I've never been instinctively against anyone who breaks the Overton window. But as always with Peterson, he's given to spiraling in his rhetoric. And it's part of his charm, but it also, I think, gets away from those core messages that give him the credibility that I think he does deserve. You're right. He does the thing that skeptics call the gish gallop, where it Ooh, just kind of, like the idea. I think it's named after a particular guy who did this, where they just sort of gallop past the point. And 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 because, as you say, there's this stew of biblical allusions and you know psychology and evolutionary stuff. It it, it feels very sciencey. And you might not actually ever stop and kind of unpick the very individual claims that are being made. Um, you know, and I, and I think that came out in our interview, right, when we sparred over the idea of patriarchy, which for some reason he was obsessed with getting me to say was tyrannical, which was not a phrase I would ever use about it. I would just say it's a, it's a structure in the same way capitalism is a structure that mm. under, you know, like, is an explanation for particular power relations. A large proportion of the new gurus are men. Mm. There are, of course, female gurus, but the balance is heavily skewed. You asked the question in the series, are men happier handing out advice or do we shy away from women telling us what to do? You let others answer that question. But what's your answer? <laughs> Can't I have your answer? Because I, I, my answers to this are very tentative. This is what happens when you interview a journalist. I know, I'm they really sorry. Um, what's your hunch? Because I don't think any of us really know. You could say that historically men have had a monopoly on wisdom. Yep. Maybe not in reality, but on paper. And so I do think that men generally grow up to see it as their debt to history, that they leave behind something like advice or wisdom or guidance. But let's be honest, for anyone who's grown up in a two-parent household, mother, father specifically, they will invariably talk about all the lessons their mother taught them. I just think that there may be more of a philosophical tone and a more worldly tone yes, that men do is, like to is put on. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody insofar as I have a younger brother and whenever I give him advice, I can see him looking at me. You know, he can see that I'm going on a bit of a pedagogical turn. That's so interesting. And I think it's just how we like to perform on the world stage. I also think there's maybe a slight hero-worshipping aspect to it, which is that men are slightly reluctant to hero-worship women. That's a bit weird still. There's a statistic I think about a lot. The... Um, BBC Radio 4 programme Great Lives which I love presented by Matthew Paris which someone picks a great life I picked Catherine de Medici uh, with a very excitable French historian 
It was great fun. But uh, when they did a 25th anniversary program, I think it was quite recently, they said that women tend to pick sort of roughly 50-50 men or women as their great lives. Men very rarely pick women. So your answer to the question, if I can turn the question back on you. Yeah. Why are so many gurus men? I think there is a fact that I think men by socialization are more encouraged to share their big thoughts. Um, I think you meet more men who hold forth in everyday life. I mean, I'm just talking like at parties, right? They may be more likely you'll get stuck in a conversation with someone who's just banging on. That person is more likely to be a man, not reading the social cues. Do you think it's insecurity that makes men, you say, happy to hand out advice, maybe anxious to hand out advice, anxious to be heard, anxious to be important, anxious to be fuckable and interesting to women? I think, yeah. (laughs) I mean... I'm not, I'm just, I'm just mentally running it through about like, is talking about drinking your own urine on the internet something that makes chicks want to bang you? Well, I don't know. Maybe it is. I'm not sure he was into chicks, was he? No, that's right. Well, I think he's into everybody, actually. I think he doesn't believe in labels. <laughs> ah. It's very cool and Canadian. But, sure. um, but like, when I, other, like, other sort of 50-year-old men of the intellectual dark web getting a lot of women attention, like, do they, is that what they want? I don't know. I, it's more like, I think, I think you're right. Like, it's more like a status thing isn't it the most viral moment of your career to date was your GQ interview with Jordan Peterson in 2018 and needless to say there wasn't a dull moment Uh, what did you come away thinking about him then and years on do you think you were right it's interesting because I watched it at the time and I sent it off to my transcriber uh, to write the piece up and she was like he was horrible to you and it was really interesting to get that outside perspective and it's one that has really divided opinion ever since right and that there are people who think he's come he comes across incredibly badly and there are people who think i come across incredibly badly so there's two very strong and completely irreconcilable schools of thought about that interview um i think at the time i was kind of exhausted i mean i'd flown over like in my days off from the new statesman so i'd flown out on the thursday and i had to fly back on the sunday and then went back to work on the monday so i don't think i really got to process it for a long time and um i'm not sure I entirely realised how big it would be to the extent that I remember the cameraman because they only decided to record it at the very last minute and there was a stills photographer who then also decided to record it which is why there isn't like a shot of me there's only the two shot and the shot of him it's you know and the sound isn't amazing in it right it was a kind of slightly last minute oh and let's do a video of this and the guy doing it was like don't know who's going to want to listen to this and so I think it was a surprise to me how much that, how large that is limb. I tried not to talk about it for quite a long time because I just wanted everyone else to be able to have their opinions on it without trying to do like after-sale service. Because the one thing that drives you absolutely insane if you're anybody with any kind of public writing profile is trying to kind of follow people home and argue with them about that actually they've got you all wrong. Have you ever seen, there's a brilliant episode of Frasier, which I'm obsessed with. It's called The Focus Group. I've seen many, many episodes of it, but honestly, I, I don't know episode from episode. So okay. go on, well, please. Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a one where he is invited, to, like KCWA, whatever the network's called, to watch through a two-way mirror, a focus group. And everyone loves him, and they're so nice about him, apart from one guy who says, I just don't like him. Right. And the story of the rest of the episode is the story of him being obsessed with this one guy who turns out to run a vending stall a series of very Fraser-like mishaps happen. He ends up burning down this guy's like little bodega, ruining his life. And it's all because he's so obsessed with finding out why this guy's like him. And the end is that the guy says, I think you're a smarty pants. And it's just like the fact that he's just become one out of 10 people, you know, just had something nasty. And he was just so obsessed about fighting. And like, you know, he 
should know he already is a smarty pants. Or like anyone is available to tell him that. And that to me is like, for something that happened pre-Twitter, that's like a very good uh, parable about the way that the internet can poison you. And so this interview with Jordan Peterson left you thinking, gosh, he's a smarty pants. Oh, no. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. Because no. he is known for wearing very smart pants. pants. He started dressing like the Joker of late. It's really quite something. Um, no, I thought he was very stern. I think that's the thing I thought was really interesting at the time. And I think the piece reflected that. I thought he was very well-dressed. I thought he was, you know... And, and now, knowing as I do that he later went through the really big struggles with benzodiazepines, I think that's, you know... I think it was probably not his... You know, favorite thing to do. I think he. I think himself has talked about the fact that he was quite burnt out by that point. Um, and people do every so often kind of go like, "Oh, you should do a rematch." And I just, I don't know, man. I don't think that would be a good idea. Like, I'd be, I'd be quite up for it, but I think he feels. Well, he has said publicly that he thinks I was mean to him in advance of it, which I would strongly contest. All right, here we have it. So in front of us here, we have the sirloin steak, triple cooked chips, the Caesar salad, cream spinach, and what was the last thing we ordered? Ah, the buttered greens. greens. The Excellent. tokenistic buttered greens. All right. Talking about somebody like Russell Brand, as we did earlier, and obviously what he's doing now is a far cry from just talking on TV about who's going to be next booted out of the Big Brother house. But I wanted to ask you about any gurus you've seen emerge in the last few years that were, you think, unlikely gurus to emerge people that you would never have guessed would perhaps even ones that you've seen emerge and you've thought mm, that's disappointing <laughs> uh, well I guess one way of rephrasing that is to say who has ended up with a cult of personality around them and hasn't been sufficiently uh, self-aware to reject that I mean I guess one example of that the obvious one that springs to mind to me is Jeremy Corbyn and um, you know I'm sorry to anyone that's offensive to who really did see him um, offering something different, which I don't deprecate, you know, the idea that the Labour Party had been too um, concessionary to the centre for a long time and it needed to, you know, revive its, its left-wing roots. But I remember going to a very early Jeremy Corbyn meeting, and I spoke about this in the documentary I made for the BBC, The Church of Social Justice. It was actually at the Union Chapel in Islington, and it had the feel of a revivalist meeting, and everybody there seemed so excited like it did feel like there's something they had been waiting for for so long had finally happened and that was during the campaign right and I remember just not not feeling it at all um, and you know I talked to people who were very close to Jeremy Corbyn and they said one of the things that you need to understand in order to understand him and how he ran the Labour Party is that he was quite a vain person and that manifested itself in the sense of actually looking quite humble and, you know, living a humble lifestyle. You know, not, you know, it's not how we would traditionally think of vanity, right? He's not with the Rolex watches and stuff like that. But he had a very strong self-image of himself as a, a kind of righteous one. Um, and that did mean that he didn't, you know, treat the kind of cult of personality around him with the kind of due level of scepticism. And that's something that came up again and again in the series with people particularly academics. So Peter Turchin will be one example of this, a complexity scientist in the last episode or Ibram Kendi, the anti-racism uh, educator, that they had this very tense and complicated relationship with the idea of having followers. And some of them, would, you know, Peter Turchin had said, you know, people keep trying to pay me loads of money to talk about this stuff and I don't want to do it. I want to be an academic. I want to go and do my research. And it's very interesting who, who resists that, like, 
you know, the golden ticket of like, would you like loads of attention and praise and, but which always comes with a dark side as well, right? Like talk to Jeremy Corbyn about whether or not he enjoyed being Labour leader and I would say he probably didn't most of the time, being terribly attacked in the press. He loved being on the campaign trail where it was all, you know, people taking selfies with him and saying that, you know, what a breath of fresh air he was. Crowd at so, Glastonbury's pyramid stage. Right, exactly. And that's one name. of the things that's really fascinating. Like, I think always fame is a is a double-edged sword because people seek fame because they think it will fill some hole within them and then they become famous and discover that the hole is still there. And internet fame is, is particularly brutal for that because you're getting all the feedback all of the time and it's so sharply divided down, down the middle that it, it, I think it does sort of drive people slightly mad if they listen to it too much. I have no particular bitterness in my heart for Jeremy Corbyn. I do remember one televised debate between him and Boris Johnson, I think in the run-up to Christmas, where the final question was, what would you choose as a Christmas present for each other? Jeremy Corbyn said that he would buy Boris Johnson a copy of A Christmas Carol. He said he thought there'd be much for him to learn within those pages. I mean, come on, Boris Johnson has read A Christmas Carol. I mean, if not, he's at least watched a Muppet Christmas sure, Carol like sure. everyone else. But They're yeah. all playing to the crowd. Boris Johnson said that he would buy, and he was doing his scratching head hair thing, some, some damson jam. To which Jeremy Corbyn simply replied, I grow my own damsons. <laughs> it was actually just weirdly for Boris Johnson quite a nice, like, you like jam. Thank you very much. These look like complimentary white wines. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Marvellous. Red carpet treatment here tonight. <laughs> I'm not having a second drink. As we were eating, uh, listeners won't be aware, we were talking about Zelensky as well, somebody who's risen to huge prominence on the world stage uh, and has become the kind of embodiment of a country's struggle. Hasn't asked for it, though. Zelensky, very few people will think of now as a comedian, primarily at least, but I think that the phrase, it's funny because it's true, flip that, and I think you get what a lot of people see in comedy, which is that it's true because it's funny. When people are made to laugh, I think it does more for them now than it ever did. I think that they sense that there's a connection to something like the truth in their shared understanding of a joke. And when an intellectual, a public intellectual, is able to make the audience laugh, there is a kind of almost this heightened resonance with everything else they're saying because they've also managed to make us feel something that brings us into a kind of communion with them. And this is, again, part of the therapeutic culture. I mean, do you think that comedians have become part of the new guru culture it's very interesting i didn't explore any comedians during the series but you're right laughter is complicity that's why it's so powerful and so dangerous because once you're laughing with someone you've aligned yourself with them and it's why you know there's been such resistance to the traditional jokes you know the kind of racist jokes or the sexist jokes because it com it, it created a complicity of we're all in the audience and like look at those other people that we're we're laughing about and, and they're not like us and you're on my side. And there is huge power in being the one with the microphone. You know, the, the great thing that people always say about stand-up comedy, you know, they, if, you, if you get heckled, people want to see the heckler smacked down, right? They don't want the heckler to win. You go to a Jimmy Carr show and someone heckles him and everyone's excited because they're like, wow, he's about to cream that guy. Like, that's the, where the power dynamic lies in it. And there is, you know, I, I'm somebody who does believe that such a thing as cancel culture exists. There is an over-censoriousness and an attempt to enforce rules through uh, pressure on corporations particularly. But that said, there are an awful lot of comedians who get a false kind of 
outlaw glamour despite being incredibly rich and famous because they're, say, they're presenting themselves as I'm saying things you don't want to hear and it's kind of sad I mean I, fe- I feel this quite strongly about Dave Chappelle who I'm old enough to remember Chappelle's show on Comedy Central which we sort of bootlegged in some way in the early 2000s and always an incredibly funny comedian and, and actually someone who would often play high status which was really interesting about doing jokes about being incredibly rich um, and I saw his last show at the O2 and I saw Sticks and Stones and he made some very acute and brilliant points but it was creeping in this sort of like oh I can't do this joke but here's the joke and I just began to feel kind of uncomfortable with that like just just do the joke and then we'll see how like I'll be the judge of that like that's the audience's job is to tell you whether or not we receive that joke well without you priming us in that that way and particularly because he was supported by Chris Rock and a couple of other people who'd been through various scandals one of them been through a scandal for like dating teenagers that he picked up at his comedy club it began to seem a bit like reactionary and that it was a lot of people who'd actually were quite wealthy to do basically complaining about the fact that now people got to clap back and that is the kind of quote-unquote woke critique of cancel culture which sometimes I find very annoying but in this case I did think was actually partially valid was that the job of a comedian is not to be on the side of the establishment and not to be approved of by the mainstream right if it means anything it's it's being the I know I always say this about the role of the journalist is to be like the kid going the emperor's got no clothes on and the job of the comedian is to do that but like funnier but also whilst making people laugh it's not to be on the side of the emperor doing jokes about the emperor's enemy I remember you tweeting something I think it was during the pandemic in which you said that once a journalist's Twitter following reaches a certain point I don't know maybe uh, 100,000 followers maybe fewer they effectively become a newspaper as a journalist with a following in that range, have you struggled with managing people's expectations of you? And has it felt at times as if you've been made into a guru-type leader in your profession? Not so much anymore because I've really pulled back from, from that kind of stuff. And I've tried to have interesting and difficult conversations in the kind of places where you can have them. Like podcasts being a very good example, right? Because your podcast audience aren't necessarily connected to each other, the, like the, the temperature is lower, I mean, what I'm saying, this is basically Jeremiah against Twitter, and uh, which I think was, you know, I I met a lot of great people through Twitter. I can't be, you know, I I don't wish that it had never existed, except I kind of do, because it did allow that kind of group think, I guess, to develop. Um, and the period that I talk about in Difficult Women was like the 2010s in feminism. Um, I definitely struggled with the fact that I had a job that was a kind of commissioning job and an authority job and then also being a bit of a spiky presence online and those two things did not go together very well and there's a reason why op-ed columnists have traditionally been sort of you know freelancers who don't really come into the office much right because you have to be basically a sort of sociopath who's willing to be rude about everybody but you can't then also be managing other people or be part of the hierarchy and I think in retrospect, I, I didn't manage that particularly well. And that's the, that's the guru problem, right? And, and I don't know how you feel about this. I'm also interested in the fact that I have a lot of respect now for people who build institutions. I think we've had an absolute glut of people pointing out the flaws in everything for quite some time. And it's a lot easier to do that than it is to come up with any solutions. And I've read so many books where it's like 10 chapters about the problem. And then you're like... Do we ever get to the bit where you tell us like what the answer to this is? 
So without treating Helen as a guru, listen to The New Gurus on the BBC website. It's an excellent series. I really enjoyed it. And you have a book coming. Do I? Uh, I've been writing it for some years. I did the classic thing of starting to write it during the pandemic. And therefore, I couldn't go out and do any research and plan that into the, the writing of it. You know, whereas for difficult women, I went to the, you know, I went to Glasgow to um, the Women's Library there. I went to Edinburgh to see the Surgeons Hall. You know, I went to Derry, Londonderry to do some reporting on the um, abortion stuff there. I went to the Repeal the Eighth referendum and I was there in Dublin when that was passed. And that's the kind of backbone of that book, whereas I couldn't do any of that for this one. So it has been a long and painful gestation. But what I'm really interested in, again, a bit like difficult women, is the, is interrogating that great man theory of history. Again, like the gurus, like this has been a consistent theme of the work that I've been doing over the last couple of years. You know, what do we want from charismatic individuals and what are the dangers of that? And my, you know, basic argument is that there is no such thing as a genius except we've all decided that there is and so there is. And that's very, like, first-year sociology student, right? Like, what if everything is like a social construction, yeah? But it kind of is, right? Because we have all these stories about genius. The absolutely classic one that I think of that I write about in the book is the idea that, you know, like, that genius is something you get in exchange for a, a deficit or a lack somewhere else. So look at the stories of um, the Hollywood films about scientific or mathematical geniuses, right? And the three that I look at are A Beautiful Mind, Theory of Everything, and The Imitation Game. And the case in every single one of those is you get to be a genius, but it has this incredible cost. And in the case of John Nash, the mathematician, that's schizophrenia, that's you know, seeing people who aren't there, complete mental breakdown. The case of imitation game, it's Alan Turing being very weird and both his inability to relate to other people and his repressed homosexuality and the death of his, you know, the boy that he loved at school. And that's the price he had to pay for it. And in the case of Stephen Hawking, it's the breakdown of his body, even as his mind was one of the most brilliant ones in the, you know, in the world. And so that's something that is built very deep into our idea of, of genius, that it has a price, it has a cost. And that's, you know, it's not true in an empirical sense, right? There are lots of people who've achieved great things and had very sunny, happy lives. But for some reason, we find it intuitively appealing and right that it should have a cost. You know, that Marie Curie should, you know, lose skin to radiation burns. You know, that... Is it like Raphael or Michelangelo, you know, painted for so long, didn't change their socks, they had to be sort of peeled off their skin. You know, that, these, that, that something great costs something. And that's woven so deep into us that you can find the same archetypes going back hundreds of years. Helen Lewis, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me on the Booking Club for this episode. And perhaps if we meet again to discuss your forthcoming book, this may be the table we sit at once more, unless there is a second favourite to the Hawksmoor. No, it's just a, a different, it's just a different Hawksmoor is my second uh, favourite. <laughs> Thank you very much, Helen. Thank you for having me. The sound of free wine.